Now, uh, we really, at least in the context of the United States, probably still need to immunize children, and that really is unlikely to begin until the fall of 2021. I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the February 24th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red Claim Credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Today's learning objectives are to describe real-world evidence of efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines and to discuss the implications of emerging variants on vaccine dosing strategies. This educational activity is supported by independent medical educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and Eli Lilly and Company, as well as in-kind support by DKB Med LLC. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Awater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Thank you and welcome back, Dr. Allwater. Yeah, thank you, Faith. As we head into uh, hopefully warmer weather in some parts of the country, many people have asked why the numbers of COVID-19 cases have had a rather sharp decline, especially compared to some other waves. And I don't think any of us uh, researchers, uh, public health officials know the precise answers, but there are probably some uh, factors. And I think although immunization rates for COVID-19 are improving, I don't think that's a dramatic part of the equation. So over the past now year, a a fair number of people no doubt have been infected with COVID-19 and perhaps the people who have been infected uh, are a little more prone to uh, infection in terms of their behavior. Perhaps they're not abiding by social mitigation and uh, wearing masks as much, or they may be in situations where they really uh, cannot easily protect themselves. Um, for example, uh, people visiting homes and the people who are visiting homes are not uh, taking as great care. Uh, So the the decline also probably has occurred because following the holidays, the kind of intense, more intense social gathering has abated. But the other aspect, perhaps, is more immunity is building up amongst the United States population, is that this is following what I would call a fairly a a not uncommon uh, normal respiratory pattern that we might see with influenza, where uh, typically we'll see a climb anywhere over a six to 12 week period 
and uh, then a fall. Now, whether this will become a sort of seasonal wintertime respiratory virus or, or be a more of a year-round uh, respiratory virus, I, I think time will tell. But as immunity builds, it may lose the year-round ability and uh, become something that's more common in the wintertime months. So uh, importantly, uh, we've had a grim milestone with 500,000 people who have uh, succumbed to COVID-19 in the United States. But I think it's important to note that we really have a, a less than firm idea of how many people have been infected. Part of that reason is anywhere from 20 to 40% or even more people may have asymptomatic infection. And this, of course, would then raise the number of people who've been exposed, and perhaps even if they were re-exposed to the virus and so on, uh, don't become clinically ill or may not be as effective in transmitting the virus again. So I think these are some of the factors that are likely contributing to that fall. But the vaccine, of course, is what there's been much more attention to. And I thought I would just focus on a few uh, aspects that have come up in the news and uh, make some editorial comments of my own, but also try to put in some context for what has become one of the hotter items at the moment, and that's the viral variants. So many uh, states in the country still have limited supply. Uh, this is due to improve. There have been pledges by the two manufacturers of the mRNA vaccine, both Pfizer and Moderna, uh, to contribute 28 million doses per week soon uh, by uh, the middle of March of 2021. And this would uh, help increase the amount of vaccines such that we can reach the 100 million mark much faster and then hopefully get more adults immunized by uh, summertime. Now, uh, we really, at least in the context of the United States, probably still need to immunize children, and that really is unlikely to begin until the fall of 2021. And then the other issue, of course, is that this is a global pandemic, and if countries that are lower resourced are not immunizing their population, uh, there'll be still uh, risks from that perspective. The other news that I thought was important is Pfizer, which had always needed what we would call in the lab ultra cold conditions, minus 70 to minus 90 degrees, uh, appears that newer information suggests the mRNA vaccine is stable at minus 20 degrees, which is the same as Moderna. And uh, I believe the FDA is contemplating approval of this and we'll see if that changes, then uh, these two vaccines might be more in sync with one another and therefore can have a wider distribution of the Pfizer product. So although studies have been very promising, I think for many of us, we've always wondered how well in sort of so-called real world situations will these vaccines perform. Uh, some information out of Israel, which is the most highly successful country to date at immunizing their population, uh, with as of last week, over 42% of the vac uh, population immunized adult population, almost all with the Pfizer vaccine. So this study is uh, quite informal, but just looking at the health database from one of the largest healthcare insurers of over 600,000 people found that uh, if anyone 
everyone was immunized. Uh, there was a 94% protection, and uh, it appeared to be uh, at least a 92% reduction, those that did get COVID-19 uh, from being severe enough to be in the hospital. Looked like it worked well enough in uh, people over 70, and there was no immediate safety concern. So I think for people that are on the fence that this might be very reassuring about both the safety and the efficacy. In the United States, uh, there has been information that's coming out. We'll certainly hear a lot more. This is a population experience from the Mayo Health System in a preprint uh, and an early look at uh, people with over 31,000 getting the first dose, a little over 8,000 with the second dose. And just looking at this whole population, 88.7% effective. Of course, uh, most have only gotten one dose, but I think this is, again, very encouraging. Uh, also, with a much lower need for hospitalization compared to people that did not get the vaccine. So there's some additional information out of Israel uh, that uh, has gotten a lot of press, but I think it is important to put this into some context of what continues to be, I think, a vigorous debate. Uh, this information is from an Israeli healthcare system and immunized workers who have received the vaccine with the idea that even before their second dose, there seemed to be an 85% level adjusted rate reduction uh, in terms of protection. And this, for the advocates that suggest delaying the second dose, has been argued that this can extend the vaccine supply, get more people with a first dose that can at least provide some protection versus those that say you must maintain the schedule uh, because that's how the clinical trials have uh, uh, been conducted. And I think where this fits in is concerns about uh, the viral variant and to be honest, we don't have a good picture yet in the United States. There have already been descriptions of viral variants that have been homegrown in the United States, especially in Southern California, where it appears to have fostered increased rates of transmission. Uh, and exactly how these viral variants roll out is unclear, but the B1351 has the E484 K mutation, which uh, at least so far appears to have reduced effectiveness of the vaccine, but still sufficient, um, at least by virus neutralization studies. But this has um, raised concerns. And, and the reason I bring this up is with a one-dose strategy, we'll talk about uh, how that might fit in with these variants. Now, why these variants are a worry, uh, we, there has been information from the UK early in the fall about uh, perhaps a 40 to 50% increased risk of transmission, but we're beginning to get some clarity as to why this might be the case. And this is a preprint out of Harvard that looked at longitudinal PCR in patients with COVID-19, including seven people who had the variant that was first identified in the United Kingdom. And what you can see here is uh, what these investigators have called both the uh, proliferation and the clearance stage where people might be infected was much longer in people that had the variant compared to those that did not, a difference of approximately five days. Um, it's more not so much that they have a higher 
number of virus, but just a longer rate of production. And why that's the case is not exactly clear. And so for people that uh, are advocating for the one jab, the one-shot uh, administration to extend the supply. It's this variant that was first described in South Africa, but also now has been identified in the United Kingdom strain and also in the one from Brazil and Japan and may also be in homegrown strains uh, from the United States. To what extent, we're not sure. And this is where a number of studies, and this is just one preprint, but there's at least five or six that have looked at this question from both the Moderna and Pfizer uh, vaccine recipients, that there is clearly a reduction in the effectiveness of the antibodies such that average sera um, is less effective, but still thought to be sufficient. The problem is sera taken from people that have only had one dose seems to have no impact. So it's really only with the second dose that sufficient numbers of antibodies are being made. And I think this is a key point. Now, uh, this could be delayed, but if the viral variant gets hold, then by extending the supply um, uh, by waiting two or three months could give a viral variant a greater toehold in those people that have been immunized. And therefore you're really losing the uh, chance to uh, uh, quell this when numbers are still low. Now, of course, there are people that are not immune at all or not uh, at all engaged yet in the uh, vaccine administration. So I think this is a legitimate argument at the moment. The United States is uh, hewed to the uh, vaccine schedule. Of course, there have been uh, supply issues where there have been some mild delays, but that's usually in days and not a structured delay in the number of months. So I'd like to close with this slide as the spike protein is really at the nexus of these mutations that we feel might affect uh, the transmissibility of this virus, but also our prevention or perhaps even some of our treatment strategies. So the trimeric spike protein actually has this closed or standing down phase here, and then uh, undergoes a conformational change where it stands up. And as you sort of saw in this video, as it stands up, there's much greater exposure of the protein. So there are more antigenic targets. It's thought to be a riper target for antibodies and immune responses. And the thought is that these uh, uh, mutational changes actually foster this uh, protein to stay in, a, in a, a tighter and more of a standing down position rather than the standing up position. And with some of these just minor amino acid changes, if it changes the conformational structure enough, we do know that the uh, uh, B1351 mutation, which is, was first described in the United Kingdom and is here in the United States, uh, can evade uh, the monoclonal antibodies that we have available. And as I've just mentioned, that is also the strain where uh, the uh, vaccine, the, the serum responses in people that have been immunized seem to be effective, but less effective than against um, other strains of the virus. So this is something that's being paid uh, much attention, Faith.
Fantastic. Dr. Alwater, thank you so much for that. Um, we're going to move into some learner questions. And our first one is, can elderly people who are fully vaccinated visit with unvaccinated family members who have taken all standard precautions? Yeah, so uh, Faith, I think the answer is probably yes, but I think it also depends on uh, risk tolerance. We do know that COVID-19 uh, infections are generally acquired in home environments. And it's generally someone that might be bringing the vac, uh, the infection into the household, especially with an at-risk person. Now, if someone's immunized, uh, again, they're not going to be fully protected, but they are certainly very well protected against severe COVID-19, although it can still happen. Uh, as to what extent, we're not really sure, but still a few percent. Now, if the people visiting are wearing masks and social distancing, then I, I think those risks are relatively low, uh, but it's not a, a, a zero event. So I, I think as everyone has an understanding. Okay, and our final learner question is, what can you tell us about the new J&J &J vaccine? Yeah, so the Johnson & Johnson, uh, really the Janssen vaccine, it is based on the spike protein, but it's in an adenovirus vector, adenovirus 26, a virus that's very uh, uncommonly um, a cause of human infection. And that vaccine has proven effective in 85% uh, level of protection against preventing people from developing severe COVID-19, the kind of illness that would put someone in the hospital. Now, the overall efficacy is lower and is in the low 50% range if, if it went from studies in South Africa, where the predominant uh, viral strain there is the one we've been discussing, the B1351. So I think this will be a very effective tool. Um, I think the Food and Drug Administration will approve it. It only requires refrigeration and it is only a single dose. Now, how long that will provide adequate protection and will people get uh, uh, need a second vaccine with a different product and so on, all excellent questions. But I think this is another important vaccine to add uh, to our efforts at trying to get as many people immunized in the United States as soon as possible. So uh, uh, we'll see what the FDA says, but if it grants emergency use authorization, my advice to anyone that is eligible is to get whatever vaccine is available at this time. Uh, and that's really not only going to protect you, but do the most possible for trying to decrease the impact of the pandemic on our communities in the United States. That I, I think uh, certainly there is less risk. Now there's even less risk if the people visiting are immunized, but of course that's not quite where we are in most households so far. Dr. Alwater, thank you again for those updates. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Thanks again, Dr. Alwater. 
Uh, thank you, Faith. And I'm sure we'll be talking more about variants and vaccines on future programs.